invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, while you're finding that, let me just say, great, incredible, man. Thanks for doing that. The interesting thing is, he just started playing the, the uh, guitar like last week. And so that's pretty, those online courses are phenomenal. No, I'm just kidding. How long have you been playing the guitar? Four years. So still, I've owned a guitar for like 20 years. And I can't do that, man. That's, you've got an incredible talent, so uh, God's blessed you. It is a gift from God, isn't it? So thank you for uh, sharing with us today. The title of the message today is The Picture. And I know some of you are going to find this hard to believe, but people used to carry pictures in their wallets. And I'm not talking about pictures of dead presidents. I'm talking about, like, actual pictures of loved ones. You used to go to the store and buy a wallet that would already have pictures in it. So you can make a decision over whether the pictures in the wallet you bought look better than the ones you were going to put in there or not. You can keep those. Now we carry pictures on phones, right? Some of you are thinking, why didn't you just do that all the time? Well, the phones we used to have <laughs> were like tethered to the wall. And uh, you didn't really take those very far away from the wall. But I had a very special picture in my wallet growing up. I had a picture of the girl that I loved in my wallet. And this was a girl that I dated from really the seventh grade uh, through high school. We, we dated off and on, went steady a few times, dated other people. She headed off to college. I headed off to college. And I realized this is the girl I want to marry. And yet we were separated by about four hours of distance. And again, you're not going to understand this, but when I was dating my future wife, uh, you didn't just text or Skype. You actually had to write letters. And so, you know, if you wanted to tell her something in a letter, it took three days for it to get there. And it would take three days for letters to get to me. So, you know, it was kind of, if I asked her something in a letter, it may take me a week before I'd ever get an answer. And, yeah, you could talk on the phone, but it cost a fortune. So while we were dating, really, the last three years of college, I knew this is the girl I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, and yet she was four hours away. I couldn't just get in the car. I couldn't at that time Skype or text. I couldn't just talk on the cell phone. It, it was a commitment to talk on the phone. You had to arrange a time where both of you are going to be near the wall where the phone was tethered. <laughs> and you could only talk a couple of times a week because it was so expensive. In fact, my freshman year in college, I talked so much on the phone, I had like a $100 phone bill. And there was a problem. You couldn't take your final exams if you hadn't paid all your bills. So I literally sold my math textbook in order to pay my phone bill so I could take my math exam. I don't recommend you try that at home, okay? It's dangerous. But picture this. We dated, like I say, all throughout high school. We dated in college. And there came a day in April of 1981 that I stood at the front of a church and walked, watched her walk down an aisle. And the thought never crossed my mind, you know what, I think I'll just keep the picture. Wouldn't that be ridiculous to think, man, this picture is what I've looked at more than her the last three years, and I really love the picture. No, what was the picture? It was a representation of her. So I didn't stand at the front of the, of the sanctuary that day thinking, i just really rather keep the picture. No, that was who I wanted. The picture was just a reflection of it. And I also stood at the front that day, and a tear came down my eye. So I saw her walk down the aisle because I thought, of all the other girls that we're going to be without. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. That was just 
there was a, there was a long pause there, so thank, if that was just a courtesy laugh, I appreciate it. Thanks for playing along, okay? No. We've been married now for 33 years, and I would much rather have the real thing than the picture. Here's the problem. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who had only experienced the picture. They only caught a glimpse of the shadow and the, and the form. And they were beginning to experience the substance, and some of them didn't get it. Some of them couldn't take with a picture of the Old Testament and recognize that we don't have to live with the picture anymore. Reality is here. And as ridiculous as that sounds, you know, we can look at the Old Testament, we look at the New Testament and think, how crazy were those people? Folks, we do the same thing today. If all you have is a form of godliness, if all you have experienced is religion, you're in love with the picture. And let me just say, the real thing is so much better. Let's look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we'll pick up to, to cover all, of verse, all the way down to verse 18 before we're done. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And after saying sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law, then he said. We'll pick up there in just a moment. First thing is the picture is incomplete. The law is just a shadow. And he's used that phrase, shadow, before. He used it to speak of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a building. It was actually a tent in the Old Testament that represented the presence of God. The tabernacle was about the size of this building, roughly. So everybody couldn't get into the tabernacle. The priest operated in there daily in the holy place. And once a year in a smaller place called the Holy of Holies. But it was just a shadow. The tabernacle was a shadow of heaven. The true holy of holies where you and I will spend eternity. It's where God is. But that represented God for them there. That represented the presence of God throughout the Old Testament. It had a purpose and it was good. But it was just a shadow. In fact, it was really just a vague shadow. It wasn't even clear, distinct. It wasn't a good picture. It was really just a blurry image that was teaching them something. So it was good. But now we come, even the, the law was a shadow, really. The law was a shadow of what? The law was a shadow of the gospel. The law were not just the Ten Commandments, but hundreds of laws throughout the Old Testament that showed them what? It showed them we can't keep the law. Has there ever been anyone who perfectly kept all the law of the Old Testament? Jesus. Okay. Besides Jesus, had there ever been anybody 
No. The Apostle Paul would even say of himself, he would say, you know what? I was a good Pharisee. I kept the law. And yet he would also acknowledge I'm the chiefest of sinners. So the law was a shadow of grace. The law was a shadow of what was to come. And that was the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me just share a couple of verses with you. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does that mean? All have broken the law. We've all sinned. The, the literal meaning of the word sin is to miss the target. The target is the glory of God. The target is to do everything according to God's will and bring Him glory. And every time we drew back the bow, the target fell short. Never got there. So we've all sinned. Then Paul also writing in Romans chapter 6 says, and there's a wage, there's a penalty, there's a payment for sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the gospel message. Now, there's more verses we could share, but in a nutshell, the difference between the law was do this, don't do that. Nobody kept it. So it was only a shadow of what was to come. They had a purpose to it. God was pointing towards the fulfillment of it. Jesus Christ did not come to do away with anything. He came to fulfill perfectly the Old Covenant. But now we come to the shadow of the sacrifice system. It was a shadow of what? Jesus himself. The law has only a shadow of good things to come. What was the good things to come? The gospel that I just described for you. And it wasn't the very form. It could never make perfect. What does the word perfect mean? It means complete. means mature. It means to be what God really wanted you to be. The law could never do that. What could the law do? The law could say you need a Savior. It could never make perfect. That, that word perfection or perfect occurs like nine times in the book of Hebrews. And it always points to the Levitical system that always fell short of making people complete. In fact, it says can never make perfect those who draw near. I thought about that today. How did you draw near to God in the Old Testament? Well, if the tabernacle represented the presence of God. The only thing you could do is just get close to the tabernacle. But what were you close to? In the Old Testament, in the wilderness, you're really just close to a tent that they had to pack up and move every time they moved, pitch it the next day, set it up the next day, and you could get kind of close, but you never really were in the presence of God. Really just the high priest once a year got to go into the Holy of Holies, which represented the presence of God. So, again, just a shadow what do we get to do? We've already looked at this in Hebrews. We're invited, Hebrews chapter 4, we're invited into the throne room of God. And how do we come there? Not based on our good works. We're based there on an invitation from God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can draw near to God. Isn't that incredible? Let that sink in. So for all those who draw near, they're never made perfect. It is never finished. One thing you'll get from the book of Hebrews when we're talking about the old sacrificial system, the work of the high priest was never finished. One of the indications of that is they never sat down. There wasn't a seat in the holy place. There wasn't a seat in the holy of holies. Well, there wasn't a seat for the priest. There was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, which represented the presence of God. But there wasn't a place to sit down because they were constantly working. In fact, day after day in the temple, 
And in the tabernacle, they offered sacrifices. It was, it was never finished. And yet when Jesus Christ died on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. It's finished. It was finished. In fact, what has Jesus done now? He sat down. High priests never got to sit down because their work was never finished. In fact, it says the worshipers once cleansed, if, if they could have truly been cleansed, there would have no longer been a consciousness of sin. They would have been forgiven. But it says there is a constant reminder. I want you to get that. The sacrificial system was a constant in-your-face reminder year after year, and in some cases day after day of your sin. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're just walking by the tabernacle and you see smoke coming up, or the temple later, once they got established in Jerusalem, the temple. Folks, every day sacrifices were taking place in the temple. And if you're just walking by and you're seeing smoke, one of the things they're going to remind you of, they're offering another, another sacrifice. And why do they offer sacrifices? As blood offerings to pay the penalty of sin. And it never fully covered. All it did was cover the sin. It never forgave the sin. In fact, really and truly, the more godly you were, the more aware you were of your sin. Because it was ever before. You know what David said in Psalms 51, verses 1 through 4? David said, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Do you have any reminders like that in your life? I think it was my first sermon out of the book of Hebrews this summer. I shared a story, true story. I, I set a pot of oil on fire in my house. You say, why'd you do that? It was an accident. I'd made French fries the night before, and Crisco has a way of kind of coagulating. There's probably a technical term for it, but that's what I'm going to use. So the next day I wanted to clean the pot, so I just turned it on to get it liquefied so I could pour it in something and throw it away. Well, I sat down on the couch and forgot about it until I realized there was a fog rolling into my house. So I went in and saw this pot of fire, flame, hitting the microwave you know, above the oven, the stove. And then I had a decision to make. What am I going to do about this? <laughs> well, I've heard a lot of people give me suggestions after the fact. You weren't there, okay? I've heard people say, you know, put sand on it, put flour on it, put a lid on it. You know, I tried the lid. That didn't work. Flames are shooting out the side of the lid. lid didn't fit right. There was a fire extinguisher like five feet away. I went to get the fire extinguisher, and I thought, this is going to be messy. If you ever shot a fire extinguisher, then you're, I don't want to have to clean the fire extinguisher up. So I thought, I'm going to carry this pot out and put it on the back porch, on the stoop. So I picked it up, and two things I learned that day. Number one, the faster you walk with a pot of fire, the more it blows back at you. So I singed eyebrows. I singed arm hairs. The other thing I learned is if you're going to go out the door with a flaming pot, it'd be a good idea to open the door first. So I've grabbed the pot, I get over to the door, and the door's closed. So I, I balance with one hand the pot of fire and open the door. About that time is when it sloshed up on my arm. And I still have four scars on my arm. And this was three months ago. Now, what is this a constant reminder of for me? That I am stupid. And it, won't, it does not help me after the service if you come up and remind me of how stupid I am. I know. 
People say, well, what did the doctor say? <laughs> You're stupid. You know? What do you so in the same way that this is this will always I'll have this scar. I mean it's been over three months. This is still hurts. This one here just kind of blistered up. I actually went to a basketball game with my son, one of the playoff games during the NBA, and this lady was huge sitting right beside me. I started to kind of use it and go, Ma'am, they said this is not contagious, but you might want to lay off. Could you scoot over, you know? But that's about the only thing good that's come out of it. But it will be a reminder for the rest of my life. You know, I think it's leprosy. I've heard somebody say, you know, stupid ought to hurt. It does. Okay, this is a constant reminder to me next time there's a flaming pot to do, to do something different. Walk. Somebody said you ought to walk backwards with it so the flame will go that way. Well, that's smart. But, you know, then you're going to trip and have flaming hot fire on you, you know. But in the same way, that's a reminder. Listen, the sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament was a constant reminder to the Israeli, the Israel people, the Hebrew nation, that sin remained In fact, it is impossible for bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impotent. And you may say, well, then if it was so bad, why did we do it? Well, it wasn't bad because it was God's purpose. What was God trying to show them through the whole sacrificial system? Number one, the reason for the shadow is God wanted to reflect the reality that was to come. God had a purpose since the Garden of Eden, and that was to send Jesus. So the Old Testament was a picture of what was coming. Something better was about to happen. So first, it was a reality of the reflection to come. Second, it reminded them the penalty of sin is death. Folks, we need to get that even in this day and age. They understood the hundreds of thousands and millions of animals that died over the course of the sacrificial system. Somebody estimated that on Passover, nearly 300,000 Lambs and bulls and goats would be sacrificed. So that's a reminder that the penalty for sin is death. That never changed. The penalty for sin was death in the Old Testament. The penalty for sin is death in the New Testament. What's the good news? The good news is Jesus took my place. I deserve to die for my sin. But through Jesus Christ, his death, God says, is enough. The third thing, sacrifice did act at least as a temporary covering to remove the immediate judgment of God. God said, do this one day a year on Yom Kippur, and the sins of the last year will be covered. The sad news is the next day it started all over again. Here's the good news of the new covenant. The day you come to Christ, you're forgiven. And your sins are removed. The Bible says they're removed as far as the east is from the west. And the old covenant sins never removed. It's just covered temporarily. In fact, it amazes me. He quotes The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalms 40, which is David speaking. But you read it now and you see it's Jesus. Jesus says, I'm coming. 
you weren't pleased. You weren't fully delighted in all of those sacrifices. In fact, Amos chapter 5. I may have this on the screen for you. Amos 5, 21 through 24 says this. God says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Then in 1 Samuel, Samuel says, chapter 15, verse 22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. What's these Old Testament writers saying? God instituted a sacrificial system, but you know what he really wants? He wants you. He wants you to obey. Obey. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And then that's fulfilled through Jesus. Let's look at verses 9 and following. Then he said, Behold, I've come to do your will. Again, quoting Psalms 40. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins of all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. And after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart. And on their mind I will write them, he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. Jesus says, I came to do your will, verse 9. Again, quoting from Psalms 40, I came to do your will. Perfect illustration of that is the Garden of Gethsemane. What did Jesus say? Lord, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, but not my will, but your will will be done. Men and women, as we understand that God's more concerned about obedience and he has sacrificed, I've got to ask this question. Is there anything God's told you to do that you're not doing? Let that sink in a minute. As you walk with God, you're a child of God. I'm speaking now to Christians, people who've come to faith in Christ. Is there anything in your life right now? I'm not talking about the past and you say, yeah, I've, man, I blew it. No, I'm talking about right now. Is there anything that God is saying to you? You need to do this. Then my question is, have you done it? Folks, that's part of relationship with God. Jesus will speak to you through the pages of Scripture. He'll speak to you through sermons. He'll speak to you through conversations and Bible study, conversations with friends. How do you know he's speaking? Because it will always be confirmed in the Word of God. And people ask me, how do I know God's speaking? If I sense a steady push and it squares with Scripture and it's confirmed by godly counsel, that's God speaking. God's not the author of confusion. If I sense one day this and one day next something different, and it's just like this constantly, that's not from God. That's from Satan. He's the author of confusion. He's the liar, the father of all lies. So when Jesus says, I've come to do your will, allow that to 
asked the question of you, am I doing God's will? And it says he came to take away the first to establish the second. We can't have the second until the first is done away with. In fact, when he uses the word take away, it means to abolish. In fact, earlier in Hebrews it says the old has become obsolete. It's been abolished. In fact, the, the root of this is to kill it. Now, did Jesus do away with it? Yeah, he did away with it by fulfilling it perfectly. Jesus did not come to earth and say, that was bad, we're going to have something better. No, he said, that was good. I'm going to fulfill it at the cross. In verse 10, by this will you have been sanctified. Did you know that as a child of God, you're sanctified? What does that mean? It means you've been made holy. Colossians put it this way. You, Jesus will present you before God holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. The word can also mean to be set apart by God to God. Now, here's a struggle we have 21st century Americans, okay? The Bible says you're holy. The Bible says you've been sanctified. That's where you are positionally. In God's economy, you've been seated with Jesus in heavenly places. You've been made holy. Why? Because of anything you did? No, but because of what he did. Your sins have been forgiven, taken away, separated. You're holy. So positionally, that's where we are. Our struggle is practically to live that out. So positionally, I'm in Christ. That's my standing before God. I'm in Christ. I'm sanctified. The problem is we don't live that way some days. That's the practical side of it. And all I'm saying to you is I'm challenging you. Let the position of who you are in Christ be met with how you really live your life. Because the parts of your life that you're living that don't reflect this is what God's chipping away at. He's convicting you of that to bring you into conformity with the image of His Son. And that's why later on in verse 14, the word really is you are being sanctified. So in God's mind, you are sanctified, but you're also being sanctified. He's done a work in your life, and he's continuing to do it to make you look more like Jesus. He goes on and just reminds us every priest stands daily ministering, offering the same sacrifice, same sacrifices year after year, day after day. They never take away sin. But Jesus offered one sacrifice for sin, himself. And God said that was enough. And what has he done now? He has sat down at the right hand of the Father. In fact, it said the day was coming. This is again quoting from Psalms 40, fulfilled at the cross. He continues to be our advocate in heaven with the Father until one day all of his enemies become his footstool. That doesn't mean a whole lot in our culture, but in the Middle East to be under somebody's feet is the ultimate insult. And where do we see this played out in the New Testament? Philippians chapter 2, Paul puts it this way. The day is coming. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, everyone will bow. Who has a knee? George Bush just had his replaced, I read in the news. Still got a knee. It'll have to bow one day. I got two knees. They hurt a little more now. They make noises when I get up, but I still got knees. See, I willingly bow now to acknowledge that he's Lord. One day even Satan and all the demons 
will be made a footstool for Jesus because they will ultimately finally, they've already been conquered, but finally it will be proven. They'll be the footstool that acknowledge that he is Lord because by one offering, those who are sanctified, literally those who are being sanctified, he says in verse 16, this is the covenant I will make with them. And in those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their minds I will write them. Folks, that's good news. How did they get the laws in the Old Testament? Moses went up and came down with stone tablets. They had to write them down. You could go look at them. But God says, no, in the new covenant, I'm going to write them on your heart. And I'm going to place them in your memory. What is that indication of? It's an indication of relationship. Not just cold tablets or paper and pen. But God has stepped into our lives through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm reminded of where I err. Not because I go read it somewhere, but because God convicts me from within. I'm reminded of the right thing to do, not because I go and read it somewhere, but I have read it. And the Holy Spirit brings it to my memory and reminds me. And then the last thing, where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why? Because you don't need it. You don't need a sacrifice anymore. You don't need a sin offering anymore. And when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back for a sin offering. He's coming back as the conquering king. And as a child of God, I look forward to that because my sin is forgiven. As we close this morning, I want you to think about the word forgiven. You and I struggle with that. We struggle with forgiving. If somebody does something to us and we even say, I forgive you, we want to forgive, but we have a hard time forgetting, don't we? John F. Kennedy put it this way. He said, forgive your enemies, but never forget their names. You know what he means by that? You forgive, but keep a list because it may come in handy. Does God work that way? No. In fact, I love the fact he doesn't say he forgets your sins. He says, I remember them no more. Why? Because it's a choice for God. God's not forgetful, but God's sovereign, and he can do something you and I can't do. He can remember no more because he chooses to remember them no more. So my question for you today is this. Have you ever been forgiven? Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, what great news the new covenant is. And Lord, at the end of the day, the whole Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So God, how does that impact our life today and tomorrow? Well, God, first of all, I've got to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior. I don't go for a sacrifice, and I can't become the sacrifice. The sacrifice has already been offered, and you've already said it's enough. So, Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray today would be the day that they come to a holy God and admit they need a Savior. And that they would invite Jesus Christ into their life to forgive them of their sin. And then, Father, practically living out that sanctification. We are constantly in the process, Lord, you're making us holy, more like yourself. Impact our lives with that in Jesus' name. Amen.